I'm happy to introduce Geisinger's president and CEO, Dr. Jay Wanru. Thank you, Matt, and thank you to everybody joining us together uh, again today. Um, it's good to see you all. Obviously, wish it were under different circumstances. As we've done before, want to give you an update of what we're seeing and what are some of the uh, conclusions we're drawing. I think the the bottom line here is I think we're entering a really critical juncture of this pandemic. We are seeing all of the leading indicators that we track uh, continue to climb. They're on a rate of growth that frankly is very concerning. Um, the numbers have been worse since the last time we've had this press briefing with you all a couple weeks ago. Um, and believe it or not, since we started with this pandemic back in March, a quarter of all of our COVID deaths have occurred in the month of November. That just gives you a sense of how quickly this thing has been accelerating and our leading indicators are indeed uh, at a significant point of rising over the last couple of days um, and in recent days, I should say, and the challenges do continue to mount. Um, the good news though, if there's a silver lining, it's not too late. We could actually stem this tide, uh, but it's gonna require all of us doing this together out in the communities, focusing on the same precautionary measures that we've talked about many times before the two big ones being we have to remember to mask and we have to avoid gatherings. Um, anybody outside of the household with folks that you're used to living with, um, we should not be gathering um, in indoor environments where you can't be masked with those folks. Those are just not smart things. And we know that those contribute to spread. Uh, despite all of this, we have a, a great team. Uh, I can't be prouder of the teams working at Geisinger, you know, big, big shout out and thanks to those folks um, because they're, uh, they are working hard. And, and I know that everybody's tired with this, uh, both within Geisinger and out in the communities, but, but our workforce has really risen to the occasion, as I've said many times before, so that we can continue to manage and stay prepared uh, despite these challenges. So as I've done with you uh, with you all before in these settings, I, I do want to get to some data. I think that's always helpful. You're seeing some graphs on the, on the screen here. Um, but I think what we're seeing here are early signs of what we feared in the post-Thanksgiving period. Um, and so we wanted to take this opportunity to really plead with our communities, plead with you all, um, to take those precautionary upstream measures seriously because that's really the only thing that's going to dampen these trends. Um, and we do still have time to turn these things around. Doing that, we could literally save hundreds of lives. And so I think there's uh, a really good, strong case to be made to have a sense of urgency on this um, because we are seeing full-blown community spread at this point. Um, some of the numbers. So if you go back to the last half of the month of November, so maybe around the time that we uh, talked to you last, we were averaging about 240, 250 new positive tests per day. Um, we are now averaging since December 1st, uh, up over 540 uh, new positive COVID tests per day. Uh, I believe yesterday we were up over 700. Today we're a little bit on the other side of the average. I think 450 or something like that is the number that I saw. But those are concerning trends. You'll remember, we've said this before, when we see a spike in the number of positive patients, 
we very quickly thereafter, within the seven to 14 days after that, we tend to see a spike uh, in the amount of people hospitalized with COVID. And so that doesn't bode well for what we expect to see in the coming week or two as far as activity levels in our hospital. At the same time, we track the positive testing rate. So what percent of the tests that we do end up coming back positive? And we are seeing that number hover between 23 and 25% in recent days. That means that close to one in four, or roughly one in four people uh, are testing positive. Think about that when you go into the grocery stores or, or walking around, one in four people is a significant number. Uh, and that, just to put it into context, in the summer months, we were down below three or 4% positive testing rate. So that positive testing rate going up is also concerning. It's one of the leading indicators that we track. Um, and that's been another one that, that doesn't bode well for what's to come here in the coming weeks. Um, I think the impact that this has in the hospital, and you could see the, the graph that's up right now, you could see that we're up above two times the, the peak that we saw back in the spring. And uh, the other factoid here is that over the last four weeks ago, four weeks or so, we've tripled the number of patients that are admitted to our hospitals across all of our campuses with COVID. It puts a tremendous strain on the hospital. It doesn't just impact COVID patients, believe it or not. It impacts even the folks coming into the hospital for things other than COVID. And so whether it's a heart attack or a stroke, um, other healthcare needs, which we're still able to take care of, but that creates extra strain on the system. We have also over the last four weeks or so uh, dialed back some of the elective non-emergent procedures uh, in order to be fully prepared from a capacity and staffing standpoint for all of the, the COVID cases. Now, some of, these some of these cases that are getting postponed um, there, there is urgency, and clearly there's a health implication on that as well. Another example of how COVID doesn't just impact, the, it actually impacts all patients. And when it impacts all patients, it impacts all of us as members of the community. Another couple things, I did this the last time, but I think it's always worth debunking some myths. So um, myth number one, COVID is just a nursing home patient issue. Well, we know that that's not true. Uh, in fact, we continue to see 10 to 20% of our patients are uh, nursing home patients of the COVID positive patients are nursing home patients, which means 80 to 90% are actually not nursing home patients. At the same time, we continue to see 35 to 40%, so a little over a third of our patients are younger than the age of 65. Um, so it's not just a, a disease that's affecting elderly patients. It's affecting young folks. It's affecting some folks who don't have medical conditions. Um, and so I think it's worth just uh, orienting to the facts. And so that's why we share that with you. Now, it is also true that the survival rate is pretty darn high. And so I think one of the great things about uh, the pandemic, and I talked uh, earlier about the teams rising to the occasion, we have learned a lot. We've got more arrows in our, in our quiver. You've heard me say that before, as far as how to treat the virus, 
But at the same time, we do continue to see very seriously ill patients, some of whom, unfortunately, who do pass away, um, but others who may recover, but still may have lasting implications and results or sequela from the virus. And so this is something that we should be taking seriously. It's actual, absolutely um, merits and deserves that level of gravity and seriousness. Um, the other thing that I just wanted to take a moment and, um, and, and walk you through was the question of capacity. We get capacity questions a lot, whether that's beds or staffing. Um, and I mentioned to you before, uh, in the spring when we first had this, we sort of did the light switch where we had to shut down a lot of our services. We've been able to use more of the dimmer approach and dial back on certain services to uh, create capacity or staffing as we need, as we saw activity levels pick up. That's in fact what we've been doing. But at the same time, despite that, on many of our campuses, we are running very close to capacity levels and we're running pretty full. And when we're running pretty full, as I alluded to earlier, what that means is whether you're a COVID patient or even a non-COVID patient, that impacts the care that we're able to deliver. And so that's why it becomes so important, but also at the same time, it, it explains why we reinstituted our visitation limitations, why we continue to mandate and have screening for anybody coming into any of our facilities. We also require masking at all of our sites. It is through doing these things that we're still able to maintain a safe environment for people to get the care that they need. And that's uh, a key part of how we're battling this. Some other things that we're doing, we launched a new automated phone call system. There's been so many calls. We're doing thousands of tests a day. Uh, and so you can imagine returning all of those results and having the phone calls that, that come as, as far as what they should be looking for, what do you need to look out for, uh, what was the test result. That was occupying a lot of our staff just to feel the phone lines. And as we were able to launch the phone call system that's automated, that's been a huge help. It's also been a big patient satisfier. We're still working out all the kinks on that, but I think uh, that'll position us really well. Uh, and we're super excited for, for what that's been able to bring. We are also launching self-scheduling tools for people who think they need a test so that again, they don't have to deal with the phone lines on, the, on our COVID hotline but instead can go on and just do a self-scheduling of the COVID testing. As I mentioned earlier, we're doing the modulating through a dimmer, dimmer kind of approach as opposed to a light switch so that we can continue to deliver the kinds of per, uh, procedures and services that we know are clinically uh, urgent and of a priority that it does need to happen. And as a result, we've been able to scale back or modulate down um, some of our procedures, depending on the day, depending on the week over the last month or so, uh, anywhere between 10 and 50%, um, depending on campus as well. But all of these things that I'm describing are downstream activities. We need to get upstream, as you've heard us talk with you about in, in many prior sessions. And so the root cause of the virus's spread is in fact what we do in the communities, all of us, me, you, uh, anybody else out there in the communities that we serve, we play a huge role. We are the drivers of what uh, causes the spread and what can also stop the spread. And so that's why we keep um, reinforcing 
and reminding folks of the importance of masking, distancing, all of those things. And please, please avoid congregating with folks that you don't live with. Um, we thought it's important that you all get a picture uh, of the facts and of what we're facing. Um, and I wanna take a moment again to reiterate, there's time to stop this acceleration and bend this trend. Um, we have a lot of great people, 25,000 strong across our organization that's waging the battle, but they're tired. You know, our nurses, physicians, environmental staff, respiratory therapists, you name it, it's been a long battle. Um, we're gonna keep fighting it. I think we're, we're doing a really good job and my hat's off to them but they need your help as well. You know, Geisinger has been at this for over a hundred years, delivering care for the communities that we serve. We're gonna to continue to do that, but this is where we're really pleading with you all to help us as well. Uh, the best thing you can do to show your gratitude, of course, we love the balloons and the signs and all of that, but the biggest thing our folks would ask of you, and I speak on behalf of our organization, is to please, please be mindful of those behaviors out in the community, mask, distance, avoid the gatherings, especially when they're indoors. Uh, COVID is out there in our communities. It's everywhere. Um, and we all have to be careful. And that's what's going to lead us to the success that gets us on the other side of this. So let me pull up there. I know we always have some great questions. Uh, so Matt, I'll turn it back to you uh, as far as some of these questions. Thank you, Dr. Rue. We have a few vaccine questions to start. The Press Enterprise asks, does Geisinger know if and when it might be receiving COVID vaccine doses? And if so, from which pharmaceutical company will they be coming? Yeah, so uh, as, as you all probably are aware, um, the vaccines, this is a piece of really good news. Uh, they are imminently going to become available. It could be even as soon as next week or the week after the first batches. It's difficult to know, will it be the Moderna vaccine or will it be the Pfizer vaccine? I think the Pfizer is probably a step ahead at this point, but I think both of them will come out here in rapid succession. But the other thing to remember is that um, all of these vaccines, um, the first batches we'll see fairly quickly within the next several weeks. But for it to, uh, for the companies to manufacture and distribute enough doses to meaningfully get uh, penetrated throughout the populations and throughout all the communities across the country, that will still take months. We think it's still the better part of six months, maybe even more, until all of these folks and uh, across meaningful parts of the population can get vaccinated. And so while there's a lot of reason for um, excitement and optimism, there's also, I think we got to be balanced and realistic around how long will it take to get everybody vaccinated. Um, I believe the Pfizer vaccine is going before the FDA for its emergency use authorization, otherwise known as an EUA, that'll formally kick off that process. And I believe that's happening next week. Uh, it's either the 10th or the 12th. Um, and then within days after that, we should see the first batches of it come through the pike and um, you know, get distributed from there. Next question is from northcentralpa.com about that Pfizer vaccine, which is nearing approval. It needs to be stored at very cold temperatures, negative 70 degrees Celsius. Does Geisinger plan to get any of this vaccine? And if so, do you have accommodations to store it or a plan for distribution? Yeah, so the answer is yes to all of the above. We've been, um, you know, when I mentioned we have a lot of good people doing great work across the organization, we've had a team 
uh, focused on the distribution, dissemination, and administration of the, of the vaccine for probably several months now. And as we've gotten more information from uh, the various regulatory bodies, uh, we've been preparing and we are prepared to take uh, some, of the, um, some of the allocations and be able to store it and then be able to distribute and administer it. Um, based on some of the prioritization that we're seeing, both from the state and federal levels, um, it'll be the frontline healthcare workers, and even within that, probably areas that are seeing almost exclusively COVID patients that will probably be near the uh, the front of the prioritization. But then other healthcare workers, and then those who are higher risk patients, namely those who are living in congregate living uh, environments like nursing homes. I think that'll be sort of that first wave that goes through with the virus, and then it'll cascade from there. Lewistown Sentinel asks, is there any indication yet as to the impact the Thanksgiving holiday has had on community spread, or is it too early to tell? I think it's a little early, but heres I don't think it's coincidence. I think at this point, we're a week out from Thanksgiving. And as I mentioned earlier, all of our leading indicators have just done a hockey stick straight up. So that would suggest um, that something caused that spike and a resurgence in activity around the communities. And so I do believe that Thanksgiving probably contributed to some of that. And it, it just harkens back to my comments earlier. We all play a role in how quickly this spreads or hopefully not quickly it spreads based on our behaviors. And if we're congregating uh, without masks in an indoor environment, that's a setup to have this spread. And, and I don't think it's a coincidence that we're starting to see the positive testing rate, the number of positive cases, and also the hospitalization numbers um, spike in recent days. So that's, um, it's concerning. Like I said, it's concerning for what uh, that holds in store for the coming weeks. Um, but that's exactly why we've got to keep reinforcing throughout all our communities the importance of these precautionary measures upstream so that we don't have to deal with the effects downstream. The Daily Item asks, does Geisinger have enough medical staff to continue treating patients in this surge? How might you be dealing with any potential labor shortages? Yeah, so um, we've had, um, and keep in mind, our employees are nothing more than reflections of the community that we live in. So uh, whatever is out there in the community, it's going to be out there in our employees as well. Um, we take all of the precautions to keep our environment safe. I think throughout the pandemic, one thing we've always been proud of is that our, our places have been safer than the communities around us. And the employee testing rates, the positive rates of the cases has been better than the communities around us. But when the spread is so significant and widespread throughout the communities, our employees are also impacted. We have had hundreds of our employees uh, who are out uh, based on either isolation or quarantining procedures. Um, it's absolutely the safe thing to do. Um, but of course, that gets to how much capacity we're able to provide. And it also factors into when I mentioned the dimmer switch of when we're scaling back certain activities like non-urgent procedures or services, we take all of that into account. Capacity is not just a space thing. It's also a staffing thing. And so that's been our approach, but uh, we're we're still managing pretty well, and we're on top of everything. And 
you know, I always compare it to almost like an airplane pilot with all the dials. We have a lot of people working on a lot of dials on an hourly basis. And I think that's really helped us to, to battle through this. But even more reason why uh, we, we could do without the additional challenges, especially the ones that can be prevented. And so that's a big part of our message here today. Daily item in WKOK asked, has Geisinger had to take patients from overwhelmed hospitals in or out of the system? And if so, what areas are the hospitals located without giving specifics and how did Geisinger work through that process? Yeah, I think we've gotten this question before. This one always puzzles me because this is routine. This is even from before COVID, if you go back years, this is how hospitals across the country operate. Um, when there's a need for a transfer and you have the available bed and you have the available capabilities, those transfers come into the hospital. Occasionally there's even transfers out of the hospital. Sometimes it's because patients live somewhere else and they were driving through on the interstate and now they're stable for transfer, but they wanna be closer to their family. I mean, these scenarios happen all day, every day across all of our campuses. They were happening prior to COVID as well. And so that's no different than, than what's been sort of business as usual for a long time. I think uh, the activity of those kinds of transfers tends to pick up when hospitals are busy. And so now with COVID activity being where it is, obviously hospitals are more busy. With flu season every year, we see a lot of that activity as well because hospitals become busier in those seasons. And so that part is, is, uh, is not different at all from what we're typically accustomed to seeing. And I'm not sure we're answering that, but I think that's what I hear the question asking. Yeah, a question come in from ABC 27. Could you tell us how things are going at Lewistown Hospital with Mifflin County remaining a hotspot? Yeah, so Lewistown is, um, I don't have the numbers. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it has been one of our hotspot areas. Um, Mifflin, Juniata, our Lewistown facility out there. And what's interesting about that uh, during the first wave back in the spring, um, we had some cases, but it, it really never experienced a significant spike. It's very different uh, from the most uh, recent month where Lewistown has continued to see a significant activity there. Um, and so in many ways, it's uh, very similar to what we're seeing across our system, whether it's in what we call our central region, you know, i.e. Montour, Columbia, Union, Snyder, Northumberland counties, um, or even in our Northeast, whether it's Luzerne, Lackawanna, or areas up there, uh, we're seeing that activity and, and that's what's contributing. I don't know if the graph is still up, but that's what's contributing to that inpatient activity. WKOK asks, what impact can the newly announced expanded testing in the state make in the area and statewide? So testing, as we've said before, is more testing is always a good thing. I think that's that's the way you really uh, get a handle and get a diagnosis quickly so that those folks can go ahead and isolate once they know they're positive. And so I think uh, as, as we hear about additional testing capacity come online, it's music to our ears, it's good news because what that enables us to do is we can focus our testing capacity, whether it's staff or supplies, on, on the patients that we serve that are right there in our ERs uh, or on our floors or in our clinics. And so um, I think that's that's good for us. It spreads the, um, 
spreads the burden of the testing and um, and we're we're happy to see it. Milton Stanford Journal writes in, can you comment on Geisinger's involvement with the long-term care facilities through the Regional Response Health Collaborative Program and specifically as the program seen an increase in long-term care facilities it has been working with recently? And what is Geisinger doing to stop the spread and, or contain the spread at long-term care facilities? Yeah, so we call this the RICP grant. Um, don't ask me what the acronym stands for, but the RICP grant has been, the program's been a, a great way for us to get upstream. You know, you hear us talk a lot about the downstream consequences, which are in the hospital, in the ICUs and so forth. And we've been talking more and more about the upstream activities. How do you prevent, how do you keep the virus from spreading in the communities? I mentioned a lot of those uh, points earlier. RICP focuses on those upstream activities, but specifically in nursing home kinds of environments. And uh, we've done over 250 evaluations and have had, I believe, over 180 responses. And um, we have a team that's just been phenomenal working hand in hand with the staff at each of these sites. Things like infection control protocols, best practices, training, education, supplies, testing, equipment, all of those things. Um, and we believe that a big part of that is the reason why, as I mentioned earlier, only 10 to 20% of those who are in our hospitals uh, for this latest spike over the last four, six, eight weeks, this fall spike, if you will, we believe that program um, may be at least partially, if not meaningfully contributing to the fact that nursing home patients represent only that small slice relative to the patients that we're seeing inside the hospital with COVID. The Daily Item asks, what toll is this taking on frontline workers? You know, I, I referenced it a little bit earlier and um, I think most of you out there probably know somebody, have a friend, family, neighbor who works um, on the front lines here at Geisinger or maybe even in some other healthcare environments. Folks are tired. I think that's that's the first way that I would describe them. Folks are tired. They've been at this a long time. I think they feel like in many ways they're, they're bailing water out of the boat. Um, and yet there's a hole in the bottom of the boat and that's the upstream activities. And, and so I think we have to focus on plugging the hole at the bottom of the boat or going upstream and turning down the spigot. We have to focus on prevention. And I think that's what uh, our folks would say. Um, because once it hits the downstream, it becomes really challenging to take care of all these folks and at the same time continue to take care of folks coming in with heart attacks and strokes and uh, intestinal bleeding and all the typical things that that people come into the hospital for and so or the clinics for that matter. And so I think um, I think our folks are doing a remarkable job, unbelievable job. I, I think that's one thing that I found I find downright inspiring, but I, I think if they could ask you for one thing, it would be your help to help prevent the spread. The Press Enterprise wrote in referencing a tweet from Governor Wolf that said, with COVID cases spiking in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is projected to run out of ICU beds by mid-December. Does that match up with Geisinger's projection? So a lot of what I'm talking about today, all these leading indicators and how they're heading Every graph we've showed you looks like this. Um, and what we've also said is we've learned how to get pretty predictive with our data and analytics team since the start of the pandemic. And they've been able to develop pretty 
accurate prediction models. And absolutely, based on what we see, we know that the next week or two or three don't look good. Um, they will be busy. They will be a lot of cases coming into the hospital because all of the leading indicators suggest that that will be the case. And so um, that's exactly why we wanna focus on, on preventing upstream. Um, but if, if the question is, do we think that we're gonna come up against capacity issues due to COVID activity in the hospitals, I would say absolutely yes. Uh, 